Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The thing that is significantly different about the Indian Ocean today, I think, is that there are far more players today than it ever had in history who could shape the geopolitics of the region. We are quite heartened to see Australia having a greater presence now in our region, in South Asia. But there's a lot more that can be done. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Rory Medcalf, the head of the National Security College at the Australian National University. It's a great pleasure to be recording this particular episode from Perth in Western Australia. And in doing that, I'll acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which we're recording, the, the Wadruk people of the Noongar Nation. We're recording from the Indian Ocean Conference, which is being held in Perth uh, by the Australian government with uh, the India Foundation uh, in February 2024. And it's a great moment to be reflecting on the importance of the Indian Ocean, not only to Australia's national security and strategic interests, but to the region as a whole, to the Indo-Pacific and to global interests. And to ask questions about whether, in fact, countries in this region and countries that are stakeholders in this region are doing enough to secure the future of what is effectively the global ocean. I'm joined by three experts on Indian Ocean Affairs uh, who the National Security College has been able to bring together here in the margins of the conference. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Shafkat Munir from the Bangladesh Institute of Peace and Security Studies, to welcome Dashana Barua from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and my colleague at the National Security College, David Brewster. Uh, thank you for joining me on this uh, on this episode. I might go to you first, David, because not only, as with our other colleagues here, you're a long-term uh, friend, watcher, observer, analyst of the Indian Ocean. But with an Australian perspective, you've seen the evolution of Australian policy over many years and sometimes I suspect the, um, uh, the uneven evolution of that policy. What's your personal sense of why the Indian Ocean matters uh, strategically? Okay, thanks very much, Rory. Um, so Australia is an Indian Ocean country and that's something that we're hearing a lot here, a lot about here at the, the conference. Australia has the largest Indian Ocean coastline of any country by far, the largest EEZ of any Indian Ocean country by far and it matters hugely to Australia. The great majority of Australia's export um, trade uh, traverses the Indian Ocean and we import virtually all of our uh, our oil across the Indian Ocean. And we've seen 
uh, with recent developments in the Red Sea, how when those maritime routes are interrupted, what the impact can be. And more broadly, uh, the risks created by climate change and geopolitics in the Indian Ocean. But it's also an area of great opportunity, um, which maybe we can talk about a little later. But as you sort of, I suppose, alluded to, Australia's approach to the Indian Ocean is really very much evolving. It's it's often uh, received sort of, I suppose, second um, priority or third priority treatment uh, compared with other parts of Australia's neighbourhood. Uh, and certainly Australia will play a different role uh, here that compared to the role Australia plays, say, in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. But it's very much evolving. It's uh, in the Indian Ocean, Australia is likely to rely heavily in working with partners such as India and France and others. But I suppose the good news for Australia is that we're seen very much in benign terms around, um, you know, the great majority of countries in the region. And so that means that there are real opportunities, I think, for Australia to extend its influence and role by working with many countries in the region to improve their capabilities and to promote um, stability in the regions um, for, uh, for further economic development. And we'll come back to some of those questions about whether Australia is doing enough uh, towards the end of the conversation, I, I suspect. But, uh, Darshana, let's go to you. And um, I would note for our listeners, of course, that uh, you have a book coming out very soon on um, on the future of the Indian Ocean, uh, the contest for the Indian Ocean. What's your perspective on why the Indian Ocean matters, uh, whether it's to the world, to India, to Australia? Uh, why? Thank you so much, Rory, and wonderful to be in Perth and and doing this podcast on the sidelines of the Indian Ocean Conference. Thank you for also for all of the support toward the book, which uh, has been a massive undertaking, but I'm uh, glad it's it's uh, going to come out soon. Um, one of the reasons I've started writing the book, but also I think on, on why we need to study the Indian Ocean, I, I would say taking on from sort of what David's laid out already, what is, why is it important for Australia, would be to also better understand the Indo-Pacific, the whole concept of Indo-Pacific and why we sort of move towards a wider construct of geopolitics and, and, and geopolitical theater was to understand how the oceans on both sides of the theater impact one another. So how does the Indian Ocean and the developments of Indian Ocean have an impact on the Pacific? And so what does it mean for the larger geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific? And I think the confluence of the two seas was essentially about that, to look at how the two oceans influence each other. So we'll see a lot of commonalities in terms of issues and, and challenges across the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. But to me, Today, when we talk so largely, uh, so widely about collaboration, in my mind, maritime security has become a very important uh, um, tool in the foreign policy diplomatic toolkit. So when we talk about maritime security, collaborations and cooperation, but we also talk about competition, I think both of that exist in the Indian Ocean because of the subregions that it encompasses from Africa and the Middle East and South Asia and its route to, route to Europe. So just an understanding of how that impacts us, I would say, is why it's relevant to study the Indian Ocean today. And I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the famous confluence of the two seas, which of course uh, reminds us of the uh, the origins of the modern Indo-Pacific strategic concept and the uh, I think the uh, really uh, strong initiative, particularly of Japan, I think 15 years ago or more now, uh, Prime Minister Abe's famous speech in the Indian Parliament, but also the way in which several of our countries began to think in very 
explicitly Indo-Pacific terms. I I would add to this the um, the question about the projected future importance of the Indian Ocean. So we've already talked about uh, issues to do with, uh, obviously, connectivity, uh, the fact that this is, in a way, the ocean that's the connective tissue of uh, the region and uh, of the broader Indo-Pacific region. But uh, if we look at the future of the Indian Ocean, the fact that uh, there are countries around the Indian Ocean littoral, uh, apart from the, the major power, India, that are very substantial in their population size, very substantial in their economic growth, uh, and very substantial in uh, the way they're beginning to leverage that into diplomatic and strategic weight. That's a great way, really, to introduce our um, our third guest here today, because uh, Shafgat Munir, your perspective from Dhaka is, is one where, where Bangladesh is becoming a really more active power in its own right in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, why does the Indian Ocean matter to you? First of all, it's wonderful to be here in Perth and also to be part of this podcast. And I'm an alumni of the ANU, so uh, it's wonderful to be part of a thing that's associated with my university. Um Bangladesh, uh, the most important thing to remember is that we are now uh, developing more of a maritime identity. And uh, for a long time, despite the fact that we are basically the gateway to the Bay of Bengal, uh, the maritime identity quite wasn't there. So it's still something which is emerging and developing. And there, I think the fact that we control or we have access to such a very important maritime space within the Indian Ocean, i.e. the Bay of Bengal, is something that's now very much in our strategic thinking. So that's a very promising development. We are also trying to harness the Indian Ocean, the Bay of Bengal, the connectivity, the resources that are there for our own economic growth and prosperity. And uh, we are also trying to look at how we can work with other Indian Ocean partners, including Australia, in addressing some of the security challenges that are there in the Indian Ocean. So I'm pleased to note that our participation in forums such as IONS, in joint exercises that are taking place in the Indian Ocean, have increased quite significantly over the years. And I'm going to interrupt you there and just um, encourage you to spell out the, that acronym for our sure, listeners. of course. Uh, the IONS is in the Indian Ocean Naval Symposium, which I think is a major uh, coordination, confidence-building, interoperability tool for Indian Ocean navies right now. And uh, Bangladesh actually hosted the Indian Ocean Conference last year in 2023. So I think it's definitely a step in the right direction, as you rightly said, in Bangladesh, stepping up to its mark in making or preserving or it's projecting its Indian Ocean maritime identity. But there is a lot more that can be done. And I would also use this opportunity to say, and I know, David, you've done a lot of work on it uh, in terms of highlighting how Canberra and Dhaka can work together more in the Indian Ocean space. I think that is something we all, we could also talk about. Yeah. One of the uh, the themes or the trends that I've seen at the conference here today is, of course, although the conference is uh, supported and sponsored by by India and Australia, nonetheless, there are other Indian Ocean countries represented here. There are other Indian Ocean voices here. And one of the big challenges ahead is how to, uh, I, I guess, how for those countries to project their own agency, whether it's individually or collectively. 
and whether in fact there's some sort of shared Indian Ocean vision that they have or whether it's actually this is such a large and disparate place that it's really not realistic for countries other than the major powers to be setting some kind of direction. I mean, do, do you have a sense, whether it's from a Bangladeshi point of view or from the point of view of other littoral states as to what countries other than India and the, the big external powers can do? I think the lack of a security architecture in the Indian Ocean is seen as a challenge by Bangladesh. And I would say that uh, in creating the sort of framework for the conversations that we have on the Indian Ocean, or uh, as we look at the Indian Ocean's future, and I'm very keen to read uh, Darshana's book. Uh, so, But I think countries like Bangladesh would like to have a bigger say in that, because I think so far... Uh, for a variety of reasons, the Indian Ocean conversation hasn't really included countries like Bangladesh. And Bangladesh is also a vast country in terms of population of over 175 million. And uh, it's a country which straddles uh, South and Southeast Asia. So for a ver number of different reasons, I think it is important to include countries like Bangladesh and to enable them to have a greater say in what kind of a future we will have for the Indian Ocean region. Uh, the numbers are pretty mind-boggling for those of us who focus perhaps more on the the Pacific or the, the, the Southwest Pacific, where Australia has a lot of interests engaged. We're really working on the development and security of, of that sub-region, if you like. Uh, but there's any one significant country in the Indian Ocean will have a population that dwarfs effectively the population of, of, of the Southwest Pacific. And yet there are also island states in the Indian Ocean, uh, some at quite small scale with their own uh, very large uh, maritime interests, resource interests and other pressures. Uh, Darshana, your work, your book focuses very heavily on uh, the island states. So uh, we've heard a bit of a Bangladeshi point of view. What about the point of view from the islands? Thank you. Um, I think this also goes to your earlier question to Shafkat in terms of, you know, are, are we going to have to rely on sort of the major players to set the direction of where Indian Ocean is going? Or is there enough room or even need for a consensus or other voices? And I think the, the thing that is significantly different about the Indian Ocean today, I think, uh, is that there are far more players today than it ever had in history who could shape the geopolitics of the region. The Indian Ocean has always been an important theater for anyone with an ambition to be a maritime power. So whether it's the Europeans, uh, whether both the wars, right, there was always a huge implication and an aspect of the Indian Ocean as a theater that really truly made it a global aspect of it. But a lot of the countries then were colonial outposts who are today all sovereign nations. So the theater has remained the same, the geography has remained the same, the importance has remained the same, but the players have changed. And in that, I think what is shifting and why we're seeing this new tussle coming up in the Indian Ocean is because of the space smaller nations and other countries are looking to make their voice heard to say that we too are Indian Ocean nations. And I think, uh, I think uh, Shafkat, uh, sort of uh, mentioned that briefly on the maritime identity and that maritime identity I see very distinctively now coming out of island states as well where you'll hear less and less of 
Sri Lankan or Maldivian politicians say we are South Asian nations and say more, we are Indian Ocean nation. We are the crown of the Indian Ocean. We are the pearl of the Indian Ocean. You know, you know there is the, there is, there the is metaphors different metaphors. <laughs> but, but it's similar on Mauritius and, and, and Seychelles, right? Like when I talk about it, absolutely they have their African hat, but they also very much have a maritime hat and an Indian Ocean hat because to... The maritime identity provides collaboration and, and the platform for larger collaboration than, say, the identity as Africa or as South Asia, which is a little limiting. And it is, quite frankly, more continental in approach than their their geographic reality, which is maritime. But can they build, I mean, can they genuinely build some kind of Indian Ocean Island solidarity in in prosecuting that identity and those interests. So, so that's that's where I think I see the future going into, and where there'll be more contestation and sort of you know challenges coming up with it. Indian Ocean, opposed to the Caribbean or the Mediterranean or the Pacific, is more siloed and disconnected as a theater. There is no. F- no forum that brings together all the islands of the Indian Ocean. It's Indian Ocean Commission is there, but doesn't bring together Sri Lanka and Maldives. Most mostly the islands come together under SIDS or AOSIS, which is small island developing states or alliance of small island states. But that's a, that's but a global, that's it's a global, global thing. one. Yeah. So it has all of the other countries. But why are we finding ourselves in this regional architecture where smaller states don't have that forum? It's because the regional architecture was set by the superpowers of that time who viewed the region the way they viewed at that point in time. But essentially, and we're seeing this debate happening at the UN, right, where you, where India and Japan and others are saying we need to be part of the UN Security Council, which was decided 75 years ago is no longer relevant and it does not address the issues of the time. And we are going to see the same thing islands bring to the fore, uh, where they're going to say, and they are saying that it's no longer the existing architecture no longer addresses it. They also raise questions to say, does the UNCLOS have clauses that address the most pressing security concerns for us, which is climate change? And the UNCLOS being? United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Thank you. <laughs> so so I think I think those questions will come to come uh, come come up. And and just as a concluding thought on this this part is I think smaller nations today have far more agency than we are than most countries are willing to accept in generating and shaping the discourse on competition and geopolitics. For instance, take the case of Solomon Islands, right? I mean Solomon Islands decision to partner with China has a reaction from Washington in a way that immediately catered so much resources to the region that they didn't for the last 40 years. Had a reaction from Canberra too. So it had a reaction from multiple and I think that similar conversation we see playing out in Sri Lanka and Maldives. These are not new players. The partners are not new. So it's their choices which is generating resource allocation from bigger players. So I think that's agency. So so that's what I would say in terms of on the maritime identity and is there space for smaller nations? I think it's happening. It's just that are the bigger players really willing to take pause, take a look how this is being shaped and, and redirect or rearrange their own policies toward the region? The, uh, the China context has been submerged throughout this conversation until a moment ago when I think you've kind of brought it a little bit more to the surface. And I think, of course, as we've agreed in this conversation and was, has been very apparent at this conference. You know, the Indian Ocean has been the meeting place, the highway, uh, you know, the global ocean in many ways, the connective tissue, uh, actually for thousands of years. Uh, but, of course, now China is entering or re-entering the Indian Ocean as, uh, as a major power, and, of course, it's China's highway to Africa, among, among other things. So 
I guess there is a China context to a lot of this conversation. It's 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 not how to keep China out of the Indian Ocean, but it's certainly how to uh, manage the way that affects the power balances, the way that affects the development of, of, of the region. I'll go back to you, David, if I may. Um, whether it's on the China context or whether it's in another direction, what do you see as uh, a pressing set of challenges for the Indian Ocean? Where should we be focusing given that there is it's such a big place, there are so many challenges, so many countries, we can't do everything? What would be your area of priority interest for this conversation? Um, well, I think Australia um, needs to address both the geopolitical um, element and the climate, uh, the climate element as well, which also those two things which seemingly are quite different also are going to increasingly interact and play off against each other. But the big geopolitical change uh, we've seen in the last decade or so has been the growing presence of China in, uh, in the Indian Ocean um, in recent years, largely under the banner of the Belt and Road Initiative where it's been building infrastructure, uh, including ports, etc. and there's a lot of concerns about what that means uh, from a, a military standpoint. And uh, the most immediate effect, I think, is uh, this very sharp competition between India and China uh, for influence among uh, the smaller countries. And China's presence has really destabilised a lot of these smaller countries um, to the extent that it's been able to offer large investments, etc., for political influence. And it's led to a uh, some very sharp jostling between India and China for uh, influence over these small states. Uh, you know, is the latest leader a China guy or an India guy, for example? Um, you know, that's the way it's it's perceived. And it, and it goes back and forth a bit, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. It's certainly not in one direction and there'll be an election where a pro or what is perceived as a pro-China leader will be elected and then, and then, you know, a few years later they'll they'll be out and there'll be someone who's more sympathetic to India. So it does, it's swinging back and forth. And it, 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 in many ways it, it has and will resemble the Cold War jostling uh, between uh, the US and the Soviet Union for influence in the in you know so-called third world countries. Uh, so that's something that will continue to destabilize the region both politically and economically. And you know from an Australian standpoint, we have to you know it's stability. We want to see stability for uh, to, uh, to create the groundwork for economic development and prosperity in the region. The other, key element and is one this is the this is the issue that really is the priority for um, many uh, Indian Ocean states is climate change uh, climate change will have a much greater impact on the Indian Ocean compared with any other of the world's mm -hmm. oceans and to some countries it more or less represents an existential threat Maldives for example uh, will mostly go underwater if there's a sea level rise of up to about a, a you know one 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 meter so it's its future existence, continuing existence as a state, is under threat. Other countries, and Bangladesh is a great example, a, a significant uh, sea level rise will inundate large parts of the country, causing population displacement, economic dislocation, etc., etc. So climate change is the big issue 
from the perspective of the um, of many countries in the region, and, and it's something that Australia must be put front and centre of our regional engagement if we want to be taken seriously. It's no good going to these countries and talking about China. Climate change must be the first issue on the agenda. We'll be right back. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a volatile world... Australia's strategic problem demands difficult decisions, licensed by an inclusive conversation. The ANU National Security College is proud to present Securing Our Future, a conference like no other, informing a distinctly Australian, people-centred vision of national security. Bringing together diverse Australian and international voices, we are bridging disciplines, professions and viewpoints. Join us in Canberra on the 9th and 10th of April this year to engage with thought leaders and decision makers from government, academia and industry. For more details and to secure your ticket, visit the link in the show notes. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Shafkat, we've already uh, referred, or David's referred to the, I guess, the, the very prominent Bangladesh example. But if you were looking at the region, the Indian Ocean region, and talking to, if you like, a global policy community and saying, this is what matters, this is where your priorities should lie, how would you how would you frame it? I would look at two issues. First of all, I would look at uh, climate change because I think it is existential. I come from a country where, according to our national strategy paper, a 14% loss of land mass is going to entail the displacement of 25 to 30 million people. That's practically the whole of Australia. So it's staggering numbers. And this kind of a displacement or could uh, create a destabilizing effect, which will not only be confined to Bangladesh. So I think this is something we really have to put on top of our agenda. And I couldn't agree more with David that as Canberra seeks to engage the Indian Ocean region, uh, climate change should be given a very significant priority. But I would also take a step back and also look at another issue, which you've raised, Rory, that there are countries like China who are coming into the Indian Ocean. And it is not a question of us saying that you can come or you cannot come. But as long as they adhere to the rules and as long as the Indian Ocean as a whole is adhering to the rules-based international order, I think that should be an important priority for us. I was quite encouraged by Darshana's comments about uh, smaller countries uh, gaining greater agency. And we see that also in Bangladesh, because these countries are attaining a higher degree of economic prosperity. They're coming onto their own. Uh, Bangladesh, for instance, is now 53 years old as an independent nation state. It is able to assert itself a lot more in the international system than perhaps what it did during the Cold War. So this is a time where the greater power, great powers or larger powers also need to work with these countries a lot more and make them constructive players in international decision-making. I think there we need to do a lot more work. 
so we've made this conversation, I guess, uh, about about many things. We've made this conversation about transnational security issues, resource pressures, climate change. We've talked about China. We've we've touched a little on on the Australia interest. We've, we've touched on the islands. I do want to come back towards the end of the conversation to be a bit more narrowly and selfishly focused on Australia, basically because uh, we're holding this conference here in Perth, and there's a there is a core question for the Australian government about what realistically can we do? Before we do that, um, Dashana, I'm going to go back to you for your, uh, your 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 wish list of one or two areas that you would like to see more global attention to the Indian Ocean. What would they be? So, so I think uh, David touched on this as well. I think climate. We have to really redefine how we how we talk about security. I think that has to be the first thing because even when you look at sort of Shangri-La dialogue, which is a, which is a meeting of all the defense ministers. And if you were to think about the defense ministers across the different stages, they will talk about different aspects of security. So climate secure, climate change is going to also start impinging on how we have defined traditional security issues. And I think that there's going to be really limited uh, maneuvering for continuing the silo of traditional versus non-traditional security issues and what are the aspects, uh, how it how it impacts sort of, uh, you know, going forward. So I would say climate has to be one big aspect of it. The other thing I want to attention going forward, which is there are a lot of things on the plate from illegal fishing to security architecture. And quickly a sidestep note to say that China is not the only other or new player in the Indian Ocean region. Uh, we did this mapping exercise of the Indian Ocean with a map last year, and we'd actually identified Turkey and Saudi Arabia and UAE and 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 Russia as, as also additional players in the Indian Ocean region. And when the Maldivian government came to power, the first international trip they took was to Turkey. It was not to India. It was not to China. It wasn't to anybody else. It was to Turkey. Um, just a small anecdote. Russia has more diplomatic missions in the Indian Ocean than Australia. So there are those other metrics in terms of how we view different players. It's just that we have confined ourselves of talking about the Indian Ocean through the lens of players who were evident or most dominant during the Cold War or immediately after that. But the reality on the ground is changing quite a bit. Uh, in terms of the attention, the things that I would like to bring, like the issues to bring attention to going forward, I would say the underwater domain. And by this, I just don't mean movement of submarines. I mean submarine cables. I mean deep sea mining. And I and I mean underwater data centers. What is happening? We're already struggling in managing what's happening on water. We're about to see science and technology has given us the capability to start harnessing the potential of the underwater domain. Do we have the capacity or the governance or the knowledge to actually start doing that? And where is that going to lead? I think that's a conversation we need to start having now to be able to address issues that I think will become really serious in the next 15 to 20 years. And and so much of the global commons in that regard is, is the Indian Ocean. Absolutely. And I think that Array of players you've mentioned. I mean, I that was it's news to me about the uh, the Maldives Turkey relationship. What's in it for Turkey, by the way? So actually, Turkey has been uh, really so. So again, when you look at the Indian Ocean as a whole and include the eastern coast of Africa, Turkey is already very present on the Western Indian Ocean. But now, over time, you're seeing that interest being extended onto the Eastern Indian Ocean side. So from the point of view of the regional countries. It is an opportunity to to bring themselves outside of the binary of India versus China. 
that there are other players, whether it's for economic or whether it's for strategic or military equipment, there are countries who are willing to sell, who are willing to give you and who are willing to enter into partnerships into, into it. For Turkey, I believe I am not an expert on Turkey, but from an Indian Ocean perspective, Turkey has also been looking to expand its uh, interest and footprint. And I think UAE is another player, right? If you actually look at the number of countries UAE has trade trading agreements with or sort of, you know, significant amount of trade with, it would be UAE. But then we don't study it like that uh, because we don't see their militaries in the Indian Ocean region. So I don't know what that interest is, but those are the things I think it's interesting. It's it's a yeah. it's a data point to start looking into and start noticing that. But it was very interesting to me that Maldives chose Turkey as the first overseas visit with a new government that has come on with a very strong anti-India or you know or say that you know we need more more partners. And I guess it it is a kind of a maybe the wrong word is Western, but there is there is a kind of a conceit to imagine that somehow the countries of the Middle East are not interested in the Indian Ocean, exactly. where in fact historically. Yeah. Uh, actually, you they've know, been very interested. You wouldn't in have present. Islam in Southeast Asia if the civilizations of the Middle East weren't interested in the Indian Ocean to begin with. So that's uh, that, that's that's I think a really useful corrective. Can we now pivot to the what is to be done, what to do for a middle power like Australia, where resources are, are finite? They're finite for everyone, but uh, we feel it pretty acutely here at the moment, where. The current Australian government has made uh, a big deal, rightly, of their attention on the Pacific and their attention on Southeast Asia, and where, in fact, the Australian concept of an Indo-Pacific strategy probably has gone through an uneven patch in recent years. It has felt a little bit less integrated. Uh, There has been less attention on the Indian Ocean other than the relationship with India, but now I think there is a moment where government is going to start being a little bit more visionary and maybe maybe promising more. But what difference can Australia actually make? We talked about climate change. We know that climate is at the centre of security concerns for Pacific Island countries as well, but it's not as if a single middle power is suddenly going to uh, single-handedly stop sea level rise. Uh, and I don't mean that facetiously. I mean that because mitigation is where so much of, of our adaptation, I'm sorry, is where so much of our response is going to have to be and working with partners to do that is going to be the way forward. David, what can Australia realistically do? Uh, thanks, Rory. Look, I, I think Australia can play an incredibly important role in the region and my starting point is really to stand back and say I would suggest that Australia needs to fundamentally reorient how we look at the Indian Ocean. It's too easy in talking about the Indian Ocean, and this is what we've been doing today, to focus on the threats and challenges and see it as a security problem. What if Australia looked at the Indian Ocean principally as an opportunity, as a massive economic opportunity? The Indian Ocean is very likely to become the engine room of world economic growth over coming decades. That's led by India, but there's a whole other string of major um, uh, countries that uh, may become the new string of Indian Ocean economic tigers. Now, if, if we stop looking at the Indian Ocean principally as a threat and start looking at, as, as, at it as principally an opportunity, but an opportunity that needs to be managed 
and encouraged and nurtured, just as Australia uh, approached the Asia-Pacific in the 70s and 80s as uh, we could play a very important role in developing regional institutions and architectures in creating the conditions for stability and economic growth. I believe that Australia can play a, a similar key role in stabilising in, uh, the Indian Ocean and promoting growth, but we need to very much reorient our, our view towards the Indian Ocean from one of principally through the lens of threat towards uh, principally through the lens, lens of opportunity. But in practical terms, what does that mean? Are we, are we talking development assistance, education, science and tech cooperation? Uh, what are we talking about? Um, much of that, but really, uh, you know, again, if you take the Asia Pacific as an example, it wasn't about Australia pouring money into the region through. And you uh, mean the Asia Pacific, right? The Asia Pacific, Asia Pacific of the seventies, eighties, nineties, yeah, East Asia. It wasn't Australia's principal role there. Wasn't providing large amounts of money, investment, or aid, etc. We uh, played a key role in developing the regional institutions that helped stabilise that part of the world to promote economic growth, to promote open trading systems, etc. And Australia can play an, a similarly important role in developing the Indian Ocean as a region, but also developing the security partnerships that uh, will be absolutely key to um, uh, underlying or creating the foundation for stability and prosperity. So we have to, we, we're, you know, only a country of 26 million people. We don't have the resources to sort of uh, uh, throw money around, but that won't uh, stop us playing a very important foundational role in developing the region. Um, and before I go to my other colleagues here, I think one point we've discussed in other formats, David, I'd love to sort of put on the table here is that question about how we think about the Indian Ocean, overlapping that with the way that we've looked at our region in recent years, the Indo-Pacific, uh, you know, the maps of the Indo-Pacific that that um, were articulated in the foreign policy white paper where somehow um, our region of interest stopped halfway across the Indian Ocean uh, with a line, uh, you know, a line down sort of, uh, you know, the, the sort of western edge of, of India. Are you arguing that we should look holistically at the Indian Ocean, effectively erase that line? Uh, y yes. I mean, it's uh, just for those who aren't aware of it, um, the Australian government, when we defined what we saw to be the boundaries of the our new Indo-Pacific region, uh, we draw, unlike all of our um, uh, partners, we draw a, draw a very thick line down the middle. Except maybe the Americans will come to that. Well, yeah, 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 but yeah. It, uh, certainly Australia draw a, drew a very thick line uh, down the middle of the Indian Ocean um, uh, on the western border of, uh, of India and said, well, the eastern part of the Indian Ocean is part of the Indo-Pacific, something that we really care about. The western part is not. It's sort of outside. And that that has had a huge amount of consequences for Australia's engagement in the region. Bureaucratically, both in, in agencies like DFAT and Defence, it makes it very difficult for them to play a significant role in that part of the world. And if Australia is to take a new and much more constructive approach to the Indian Ocean, that that line we just cannot, doesn't work. You can't draw an imaginary uh, line down the middle of the Indian Ocean and say, well, we're only going to deal with one half and not the other. Uh, it all interacts together and works together. So, yes, uh, 
we will require a rethinking of how Australia looks at the Indo-Pacific, a much less doctrinaire approach in in drawing these imaginary lines uh, at the borders of of the Indo-Pacific. Shafkat, from your perspective, uh, if you're looking at Australia, whether it's as a partner for Bangladesh or as a a player in the region more broadly, uh, what do you think is a a hopeful but realistic uh, ambition? Australia has been present, if I talk about South Asia, for a very long time. But I think, uh, as David was explaining, that uh, for a long time, Australia has also looked at primarily the Pacific and Southeast Asia in terms of its Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific engagement. We are quite heartened to see Australia having a greater presence now in our region, in South Asia, but there is a lot more that can be done. And first of all, I would say Australia brings to the table a values-based approach, promoting uh, values, promoting an adherence to the rules-based international order, which is very significant. But an area where Australia really plays a significant role, and it can play an even greater role, is in terms of capacity building, in terms of building institutions. And I would particularly focus on having the ADF, or Australian Defence Force, do a lot more engagement in that region. We're already seeing the benefits of the Navy-to-Navy cooperation that has uh, started between Bangladesh and Australia. And that is just one example. But within that region, there is an opportunity for the ADF, for the Australian um, military, to do a lot more in terms of partner capacity building, in terms of exchanges, in terms of joint exercises, in terms of uh, helping those countries build their institutional capacity. And that is where Australia has traditionally played an important role. You mentioned about education. I mean, look at the massive educational footprint that Australia enjoys in South and Southeast Asia, and which ultimately sort of helps Australia project its uh, soft power as well. I think those are areas that Australia really needs to look at. But I would certainly once again advocate for a greater engagement with South Asia. And I guess to be, to be fair to our, our friends in government uh, in, in Australia, whether it's on defence engagement, you know, there is an intent to extend uh, the defence cooperation plan or program, I'm sorry, into uh, the Indian Ocean to a greater degree than in the past. Let's see what that means in practice. Uh, there is some growth in our diplomatic footprint, I think, uh, mission being established in uh, Maldives last last year. So encouraging that direction of travel um, a lot more substantially seems to be the, the tenor of this conversation. Um, Darshana, I'll finish with you. What would you like to see Australia do? I think I think one other uh, limiting point in just having conversation on what Australia can do is the moment we start thinking oceans and maritime security, the first thing we put on the table is do we have the ships to go there, right? Like it immediately becomes a capacity concern. But mar- mar- the naval power is one aspect of maritime security. It's not the entirety of maritime security. And I think what Australia really has is the knowledge, expertise, and truly the identity of being a maritime nation, very few countries have that experience of being in that geography uh, of being maritime. So what does it mean to be a maritime nation? How do we secure our maritime boundaries? What does it mean to develop a maritime security concept? How, how do we look at the world? And I think that's what Australia offers to a region where it cannot send its boats and ships. And that's completely fine. I don't think so. That is what is expected out of Australia. I think what is expected is, is Australia willing to share its knowledge 
knowledge and its expertise and its technical expertise that it has built in the Pacific to the Indian Ocean side and find creative ways to partner with friends and players to offer that to that region. And I think that is a good distinction to for 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 friends in DFAT and defense that the conversation on maritime security for Australia and the Indian Ocean does not need to start and stop with the number of naval assets Australia has. And I don't think so that is a requirement for Australia to be that. So whether it is in voicing uh, the need for climate change, sort of, you know, climate action, resilience. Australia also sits in very big uh, multilateral forums, which holds a very big voice, whether it's at World Bank and IMF at the UN. So taking that experience of being a maritime nation, I think along walking that walk with a lot of the smaller players is uh, are aspects that most countries are looking. Just a final concluding note on this whole assets of, you know, do we have the capacity to deploy to the Indian Ocean is most of the nations, especially on the islands, don't have navies. They have coast guards or they have something like a marine police. So you don't actually need that in terms of the maritime security education Australia is already ahead in that game. I think it's about extending that to to that to that region. So I, I would again say, similar to what David said and Shafkar had said as well, redefining how Australia looks at the Indian Ocean and what it means for Australia and how is that a theater of opportunity for Canberra to actually tap into its maritime priorities and experience and knowledge and offer that to its friends and partners. And and to be fair, although Australia uh, is not. I think envisaging a large surface fleet uh, all over the Indian Ocean. Nonetheless, you know there is a, uh, a significant naval presence because, of course, uh, as the Australian submarine force develops with uh, the AUKUS, uh, the AUKUS ambition, uh, the Australian naval base south of Perth, HMAS Stirling, will be uh, will, will be the home port for a while for at least uh, part of that fleet. And of course, the Royal Australian Air Force as well uh, contributes a lot to the operating picture across the Indian Ocean. So, I think some some realistic but uh, somewhat am, am, ambitious signals there from our three panelists, whether it's to listeners in the Australian policy community or the Australian government, or whether it's to our friends across uh, the Indian Ocean. Uh, thanks for this very forward-focused, future-looking conversation. That's not only. Uh, addressing problems, but also looking at what is to be done. So in closing our discussion on the Indian Ocean region, I want to thank again uh, the Australian Government, the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the India Foundation, but especially I should add the uh, Perth US Asia Centre here in WA uh, and led very ably by Gordon Flake uh, and with Kate O'Shaughnessy uh, in a driving role as well, because all these Entities have worked together to convene the fantastic conference that has brought us to Perth over these few days. I also want to note uh, with thanks the contribution of a special friend of the National Security College as well, Sid Meyer, an Australian business figure and philanthropist, who's done a lot to support the work that David Brewster and I are doing on the Indian Ocean here at the college. So thank you, friends and colleagues, for this conversation. Uh, We look forward to joining you and our listeners uh, again in future on the National Security Podcast. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.